traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B6, Eurus. The Near East of the late 1st century BC was a pretty complicated place, full of bite-sized mini-kingdoms and a crazy mix of cultures and ethnicities. The region had been fairly unified under the Achaemenid Persian Empire. The Macedonian conquest and creation of the Seleucid Empire largely maintained that unity, only with a new Hellenistic face. But all the while, local kingdoms kept alert for any chance to declare independence. When they did, their new ruling dynasties usually defined themselves as either Persian or Hellenistic, though some, like Judea and Armenia, reached back to older traditions. To lay some of the groundwork, I've decided to use the lens of two famous kings, Mithridates the Great of Pontus and Tigranes the Great of Armenia. I chose them for two main reasons. Their offspring permeated the dynasties of neighboring kingdoms, and the war against them first drew Rome into the Near East. Pontus and Cappadocia both split off from the Persian Empire right after Alexander's conquest, and split from one another soon after that. For the next two centuries, Pontus was ruled by a mixed Persian and Greek dynasty, culminating around 113 BC with the arrival of Mithridates the Great. After expanding his Pontic kingdom through conquest and alliance, Mithridates easily defeated the first Roman army sent against him in 89 BC. He also looked good doing it, with his troops sporting gold-embossed swords and jewel-encrusted armor. The next year, Mithridates followed up with a clear statement of intent— orchestrating the mass murder of 80,000 Italians living in Anatolia. Mithridates was bent on restoring the ancient glories of the East, and his plan had little room for Western barbarians. 
The following decades saw three separate wars against three legendary Roman generals, and the Pontic king elevated to the role of Rome's greatest enemy. Mithridates claimed descent from a constellation of legendary figures, ranging from Cyrus the Great to Darius the Great to Alexander the Great to Seleucus. He leveraged these connections to project a Hellenistic face to the west and a Persian one to the east, gaining him useful allies on both fronts. While the support of Athens was flattering, the greatest ally gained was the equally ambitious king Tigranes the Great of Armenia. Their alliance was sealed when Tigranes married Mithridates' daughter, Cleopatra of Pontus. Armenia had succeeded from the Seleucid Empire a century before, under an Armenian general named Artaxes I. Now his grandson, Tigranes, was determined to be the dominant power east of Pontus. In fairly quick succession, Tigranes conquered western Parthia, Media, Syria, Phoenicia, Cilicia, and northern Nabataea. Along the way, he pretty much put the finishing touches on the decrepit Seleucid Empire based in Syria. And just so you know, I posted a helpful map of the Near East up on the Ancient World website. No less a Roman statesman than Cicero declared that Tigranes made the Republic of Rome tremble before the prowess of his arms. Tigranes enhanced his prestige by never traveling anywhere without four kings attending to him. And, as if that weren't enough, Halley's Comet swung by in 87 BC to give his early victories a celestial high-five. Despite his own early victories, Mithridates was eventually done in by the usual dogged Roman tenacity. After being defeated by Pompey the Great, and betrayed by two of his sons, Mithridates indulged in his most notorious hobby and poisoned himself to death. Tigranes also faced setbacks, when his ambitious son allied himself with first the Parthian king Phraates III, then with Pompey the Great, to overthrow his father. But Tigranes' boldness and skill had earned Pompey's respect, After forcing his surrender, Pompey allowed Tigranes to retain the Armenian throne, minus all his recent conquests. On the other hand, Tigranes' unfaithful son was sent back to Rome in chains, the apparent reward for his triple dealing. Tigranes the Great ruled Armenia until his death in 55 BC, when he was succeeded by his son, Artavasdes II also known as the guy who Cleopatra would later behead. Meanwhile, one of Tigranes' daughters married King Mithridates of Media, no relation, whose grandson was Artavasdes I, recipient of the head that Cleopatra cut off. So, technically, the whole head thing was all in the family. And yes, I've posted helpful family trees of all these crazy interwoven dynasties up on the Ancient World website. The pro-Parthian Artaxes II succeeded his father Artavasdes II as king of Armenia. 
But he soon proved unpopular and was overthrown in favor of his pro-Roman brother, Tigranes III. Upon his death, Tigranes was succeeded by joint rule by his son and daughter, Tigranes IV and Arato. But after he was killed in battle and she abdicated, the Armenians asked Octavian to give them a new king. In 2 BC, Octavian gave Armenia to King Ariobarzanes II of Media, son of King Artavasdes I. This meant the king of Media would now rule over Armenia as well. While this may have seemed like a convenient solution, it would soon have deadly repercussions for Octavian's family. Meanwhile, the Parthian king Phraates III had been succeeded, well, murdered, by his son Erodes II, who went on to crush the legions of Marcus Crassus in 53 BC. His son, Prince Pacorus, gained notoriety in 40 BC when he teamed up with a Roman rebel named Quintus Labianus and led an invasion of Roman Syria, Phoenicia, and Judea. And I guess that makes it a good time to talk a bit about Parthia. Back in the mid-3rd century BC, the Parni were an Iranian tribe from Central Asia living on the fringes of Seleucid control. After first capturing the ancient Persian satrapy of Parthia, from which their empire derived its name, the Parni spent the next century fighting a war of expansion and conquest. In the west, their main enemy was the Seleucid Empire, while in the east it was the Scythians, or Saka. By the mid-2nd century BC, the Parthian Empire controlled territories from the Euphrates to the Indus, but they soon found themselves confronting new peoples along their borders. In the east, it was the Han Chinese, who'd upset their status quo with the Saka, but ended up bringing the empire great wealth through the transshipment of silk and pearls. In the west, it was the Armenians, and soon enough, the Romans. Anyway, in 40 BC, the Parthian tide ruled west as far as Anatolia, before being ruled back by the strenuous efforts of Mark Antony's lieutenant, the Roman general Ventidius. Ventidius defeated and killed Prince Pacorus in 38 BC. When his father, King Herodes II, died the following year, he was succeeded by Pacorus's brother, Phraates IV, the guy who burned Antony's siege equipment in 36 BC. Phraates had a pretty long run, and eventually negotiated with Tiberius in 20 BC for the return of Crassus's eagle standards. But in 2 BC, he was finally killed by his wife and son, the latter of whom took the throne as Phraates V. Okay, let's loop back to Pontus. Mithridates the Great had a favorite general named Archelaus and gave him one of his daughters in marriage. He then married another daughter, Athenaeus, off to King Ariobarzanes II of Cappadocia. The Cappadocian king was succeeded by two sons, first Ariobarzanes III, then Ariarathes X, 
And yes, these names will all be on the test. Meanwhile, the son of the Pontic general Archelaus, also named Archelaus, was appointed by Pompey the Great to an interesting role. Archelaus was made high priest of the temple state of Comana in Cappadocia. The temple was dedicated to the Roman goddess of war, Bellona, and the high priest ruled as independent monarch of the local vicinity. Archelaus ended up marrying a local Greek girl and fathering a son named, you guessed it, Archelaus. After his first wife died, the elder Archelaus traveled to Egypt, where, in 56 BC, he married the Egyptian queen Berenice, older sister of Cleopatra. In 55 BC, Berenice's father, Ptolemy XII Aulites, returned from Roman exile to reclaim the Egyptian throne. Among the Romans sent to back him was a young cavalry officer named Mark Antony. Archelaus was killed in battle, and Berenice was executed by the victorious Aulites. Meanwhile, Mark Antony first laid eyes on some serious trouble in the form of the young princess Cleopatra. So, like I mentioned, there was still a son named Archelaus back home, who succeeded his father as high priest of Comana. His wife, Glyphira, was a hetera, basically a companion for you Firefly fans, or an educated, sophisticated prostitute. Archelaus was eventually deposed as high priest by Julius Caesar and died soon after, but not before he'd fathered a son with Glyphira. His son's name? Now you're getting it. Archelaus. This Archelaus had no official position, but what he did have was a pretty hot mom who happened to catch the eye of a certain Mark Antony. At the time, Antony was married to Octavia and already having an affair with Cleopatra, but, well, let's just say Antony had a lot of love to give. In fact, he was so smitten with Glyphira that he had Ariarathes X, the previously mentioned king of Cappadocia, put to death in 36 BC and placed Glyphira's son Archelaus on the throne. This is the kind of stuff I only wish I could make up. Anyway, the new King Archelaus of Cappadocia would remain loyal to his benefactor for a good five years. But after the defeat at Actium, Archelaus threw himself on Octavian's mercy. It was a good move, since Octavian allowed him to keep his throne and even expand into western Cilicia. Archelaus married a daughter of King Artavasdes II of Armenia, and fathered a daughter named Glyphira. In 18 BC, this Glyphira married Alexander of Judea, the son of King Herod the Great, which gives us the perfect opportunity to talk a bit about Judea. As you may recall, the Jews had been pretty happy under Persian rule. But the conquest of Alexander and succession of the Seleucids pretty much put an end to all that. Things got so bad that a major revolt erupted in 167 BC under the Maccabees. 
The revolt eventually forced the Seleucids to recognize Judean independence under the Hasmonean dynasty. In 125 BC, the Hasmoneans conquered Idumea, the territory formerly known as Edom, and converted its inhabitants to Judaism. Idumeans subsequently rose to positions of power under the Hasmonean kings. Antipater was just such a man. Appointed governor of Idumea, Antipater married a Nabataean noblewoman, then seized control of the Judean treasury from the weak-willed Hasmonean ethnarch Hyrcanus. In 47 BC, after dispatching 3,000 men to rescue the besieged Julius Caesar in Alexandria, Antipater was made a Roman citizen and appointed Roman procurator of Judea. Antipater's clear pro-Roman policies led to his eventual poisoning, but by then he'd already installed his son Herod as governor of Galilee. In 40 BC, Herod leveraged his position and his father's connections to enlist Roman support for a takeover of Judea, which is how, in the words of historian Warwick Ball, a low-born half-Idumean, half-Nabataean, elevated in a republican ceremony held in a pagan temple and backed by a Roman army, became king of the Jews. With Roman help, Herod overthrew the last Hasmonean king, Antigonus, in 37 BC. Antigonus was then executed, and Herod installed on the throne, by Mark Antony, who just happened to be in the neighborhood making arrangements for his Parthian campaign. Herod's marriage to the Hasmonean princess Mariamne helped connect him to the former ruling dynasty. The life and reign of Herod the Great is its own whole big mess of crazy. After being accused of drowning his brother-in-law, the young high priest Aristobulus, Herod was called to Egypt by Antony and Cleopatra to explain himself. Herod left his wife Mariamne in the care of his uncle Joseph and told him that if he was killed in Egypt, Joseph should also kill Mariamne so they could still be together in the afterlife. So, kind of romantic, but mostly psychotic. When Herod returned to Judea, his sister Salome told him that Mariamne and Joseph had had an affair, which wasn't true, but Herod had Joseph killed anyway. After that, relations between Herod's wife and sister became so strained that he shipped them off to separate palaces when he traveled abroad. Eventually, Salome convinced Herod that Mariamne was plotting to kill him, again untrue, and he reluctantly had his wife executed in 29 BC. Alexander, Herod's eldest son by Mariamne, spent six years being educated in Rome. He returned to Judea in 18 BC and, as mentioned earlier, married the Cappadocian princess Glaphyra. Handsome, charismatic, and an heir of the Maccabees, Alexander was a walking, talking threat to Herod's rule. In 7 BC, Herod had both Alexander and his younger brother Aristobulus strangled to death. Herod then forced Glaphyra to return to Cappadocia, 
while keeping her young sons, Tigranes and Alexander, under his protection. Three years later, in a nice piece of karmic justice, Herod was consumed by an excruciating illness. Fearing that no one would mourn his loss, he summoned all the most distinguished men of Judea to his deathbed. Herod then ordered his sister Salome to have them all killed right after he died, to generate the atmosphere of grief he craved. Fortunately, Herod's sister was just malicious, not crazy, so she let the plan drop. And, well, he just died. Despite all the incidents above, Herod's reign wasn't all bad. Sure, he was a paranoid psychopath, but he was also a prolific builder, responsible for such famous monuments as the Second Temple of Jerusalem, the Harbor of Caesarea, and the Fortress of Masada. He levied heavy taxes on the Judeans, but also fostered mass employment through his many building projects. He used secret police and a large personal bodyguard to suppress internal dissent, but also maintained good relations with Rome and other neighboring kingdoms. And I know what you're thinking. Scott, it's been a few minutes since you introduced a new character named Archelaus. Never fear. Herod's designated heir was Herod Archelaus, one of three sons by his fourth wife, Malthus. Herod Archelaus immediately started building on his father's legacy by canceling Passover and calling in Roman soldiers to massacre 3,000 rebellious Jews in the Great Temple. Pretty soon, both Herod Archelaus and his brother Herod Antipas traveled to Rome to argue their cases for their father's throne. In the end, Octavian divided Herod's territories between his three surviving sons, with the lion's share going to Herod Archelaus. Octavian declared him worthy to succeed his father, which was kind of a backhanded compliment. Anyway, that pretty much brings us up to speed with Judea. And now let's loop back to Pontus one last time. After Mithridates the Great died in 63 BC, the Pontic throne passed to his son, Pharnaces II. Pharnaces is mainly remembered for the brief war he fought against Julius Caesar in 46 BC, which prompted Caesar's famous quote, Veni Vidi Vici, i.e. the war did not go well for Pharnaces. He was soon succeeded by his eldest son, Darius, who was elevated to the Pontic throne by Mark Antony. When he died a few years later, Antony elevated his younger brother, Arases. And when he died a few years later, Antony decided to look around for a dynasty with some staying power. Xenon was an Anatolian aristocrat who'd helped Ventidius battle the Parthians in 40 BC. For his service to Rome, Antony elevated Zenon's son, Polemon, first to king of Cilicia, and then, on the death of Arases, to king of Pontus. After pivoting to Octavian in the wake of Actium, Polemon was also made king of the Bosporan kingdom. 
In 14 BC, Polymon married an Anatolian noblewoman named Pythodorus. In a strange twist, Pythodorus just happened to be Mark Antony's granddaughter by his second wife and first cousin, Antonia Hybrida Minor. That was the wife before Fulvia, before Octavia, and before Cleopatra. Did I mention Antony had a lot of love to give? Polymon and Pythodorus had three children, all of whom would become kings and queens in their own right. After Polymon was killed in battle in 8 BC, Queen Pythodorus became sole ruler of Pontus, Cilicia, and the Bosporan kingdom. Later that year, she married King Archelaus of neighboring Cappadocia, who'd recently lost his own wife. Together, they became the premier Anatolian power couple, ruling jointly over all four kingdoms. All of which is really just a long way of saying that when the party of Gaius Caesar arrived in the Cappadocian harbor city of Eleusa Sebaste, they were greeted by King Archelaus and Queen Pythodorus. Hmm, I guess I could have just started the episode with that. Oh well. By 1 BC, Archelaus had been on the throne for 36 years, over a decade longer than Juba. As both a Roman client king and fellow scholar, Archelaus had also been enlisted by Octavian to advise and support his adopted son. In fact, the knowledge of the two scholar kings was intended to be complementary. Juba's relevant area of expertise, gathered during the compilation of Libica, was Egypt and coastal Arabia while Archelaus was familiar with Anatolia and the Hellenistic Near East. A third-party member, a geographer named Isidoros, was an expert on Parthia and Mesopotamia. His home city of Cherax was situated on the Lower Tigris, near the Persian Gulf. It goes without saying that Octavian's designated heir wasn't being left to the protection of scholars. In addition to a substantial military contingent, Gaius was also accompanied by two former consuls, first Marcus Lollius, then Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. The latter was likely known to Juba through his 14 BC victories over the Marmaridae, south of Cyrenaica. Two other party members would gain infamy in the decades to come. The first was Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus, a childhood friend of Gaius and only son of Octavia's daughter Antonia Major, who'd eventually go on to father the hated emperor Nero. The second was Lucius Aelius Sejanus, the future Praetorian prefect under the equally hated emperor Tiberius. As it happened, Sejanus was also the adopted son of Aelius Gallus, the Egyptian prefect who'd fared so poorly in his recent Arabian campaign. The first major decision of the expedition was a personal one. The party was passing close to Rhodes, the island of Tiberius's self-imposed exile. For four years, Tiberius had allowed his eastern imperium to wither, and for that, and his general betrayal of his succession plans, Octavian had grown increasingly bitter toward his stepson. 
The princeps clear unspoken preference was that the party bypass Tiberius without any contact. Tiberius made it difficult to do so. Years of isolation had filled him with anxiety and regret, and when the expedition arrived at nearby Samos, Tiberius sailed from Rhodes to greet them. It was a fairly awkward occasion. The former consul Lollius had been badmouthing Tiberius to Gaius, and apparently even offered to sail over to Rhodes immediately if you desire me and bring you the head of the exile. So, yeah, pretty dark. Gaius accepted Tiberius's pledge of loyalty with a measure of coldness and disdain, and the visit did little to improve the relations. Two other party members made Tiberius feel more welcome. The first was Sejanus, whose early friendship and the risks it entailed would not be forgotten by the future emperor. The second, of course, was Juba. It was probably because he was so deep in Octavian's trust that Juba felt comfortable siding with his conscience and giving warm greetings to his foster brother and old friend. There must have been a lot to catch up on, since they hadn't seen each other for over two decades, but of course the nature of their discussions is unknown. What is known is that Tiberius never forgot Juba's kind gesture— and the Mauritanian dynasty would remain a strong ally of Rome long after Octavian's death. Conversely, King Archelaus of Cappadocia, who strenuously avoided any contact with Tiberius, would eventually pay for the snub with his life. From Iliusa Sebaste, the expedition set off further east, arriving in Antioch near the end of 1 BC. The Syrian capital was to be Gaius's command center, and it was here that he assumed both the governorship and his first Roman consulship. Once the preliminaries were out of the way, Gaius turned his attention to his first official task. The kingdom of Nabatea was located in northern Arabia, on the borders of both Judea and Egypt. Originally nomadic pastoralists, the Nabataeans had seized the old Edomite capital of Petra in the late 4th century BC, and slowly built themselves into a major regional power. While they'd supported the Maccabees in their wars against the Seleucids, the two allies came into conflict once Judea gained independence. Their first major battle, in 93 BC, resulted in a Nabataean victory. In 85 BC, under King Aretas III, the Nabataeans even managed to seize the major trade hub of Damascus from the Seleucids. Aretas began to portray himself as a Hellenistic monarch and invited Greek and Roman influences into his kingdom. What he eventually got was a Roman army laying siege to Petra in 62 BC. To break the siege, Aretas agreed to be a vassal king of Rome. The resulting treaty was brokered by Antipater, the father of Herod the Great. Aretas was succeeded by Malchus I, the guy who burned Cleopatra's ships, then by Obodas II, the guy who'd helped alias Gallus in his ill-fated Arabian expedition.
In 8 BC, Obodos was poisoned by a royal relative, who took the throne as Aretas IV. Over the past few years, Aretas had faced incursions by local tribes, who deposed him and expelled him from Petra. As his first official task, Gaius Caesar was to travel to Nabatea and get things sorted out. Accompanied by the Syrian legions, Gaius and his party sailed from Seleucia Pieria, the port city of Antioch, south to Gaza, then marched overland toward Petra. By the time they arrived, the invading tribes had wisely fled the capital, and Gaius restored King Aretas to the Nabataean throne. Moving south toward the Red Sea, the party skirmished with nomadic bandits, who were easily overpowered and driven off. If Gaius was tempted to penetrate farther south, Sejanus likely drew on his father's experience to caution against it. Declaring his first mission accomplished, Gaius returned via Gaza to Antioch, arriving in late 1 AD. His next task, negotiating with the Parthians, would likely prove far more challenging, and Gaius planned to enlist the help of Isidorus of Cherax. Since Juba had no Parthian expertise, he was released from the expedition, with Gaius's thanks. Though there's no record of it, it's hard to picture Juba passing up the opportunity to visit Alexandria and its famous library. Either way, he soon sailed to Cappadocia and the court of King Archelaus. Maybe the original plan was for a brief stopover on the way back home, but Juba found himself enjoying the company of the scholarly Hellenistic king whose palace held a library that rivaled Juba's own. Juba had it in mind to write a sequel to Libica, covering Arabia, Nabatea, and adjacent lands, and he couldn't picture a more pleasant setting than the Cappadocian court, especially when you factored in Archelaus's beautiful and cultured daughter, Glyphyra, the widow of Herod the Great's son, Alexander. All things considered, perhaps Mauritania could wait a bit longer after all.